0: all right trinity church how are you doing today good you are here we're so glad you are i want to welcome you those that are here in the house with us but also those of you guys out in the pavilion a big welcome to you and those watching online we're grateful that you're all here and a part of this service Uh, together today. My name is Todd Arnett, the lead pastor at Trinity Church. You notice a band-aid in the middle of my face. I know this, right? You don't have to go, Todd, really? No, I didn't know. Yes, you did. It's okay. I had a skin cancer thing removed earlier this week. I have a really cool wicked scar now that I'm really excited about. When they get this thing off, it's going to make me look macho. And finally, like I was actually thinking about today, like I could preach this way the whole way. So you could just see this side. So now I have a, I actually have a, a side now moving forward. You're like, Todd, no, you've never had any good side, but now I feel like I will, so it'll be great. But that's what's going on with me. I am so glad that you're here and we're ready to uh, dive in today. We're finishing a series on the parables. We haven't looked at every parable in the New Testament. We've looked at a lot over the course of this summer, and we're gonna kind of bring this together with one uh, final message that's really, to me, very, very powerful about who we are in relation to who God is and, and what's expected. What do we do out of that relationship? So I'm excited to look at that with you. If you have a Bible today, you can open it to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is where we're going to be. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Make your way there. If you also have notes in your Trinity this week, you might want to have those out ready to go, and that'll help you track with us as we kind of walk through our time together today. Um, A couple things as you're doing that. First off, again, if you didn't get a chance, all the kind of finished product on our plaza with the planter that's going on out there, it has got done this week. Really grateful for the teams that worked so hard to get that done. It looks awesome. So make sure you get a chance to take a look and see what, what's going on there. Also, um, for those of us, you, you've been kind of aware that we are beginning a 5.30 evening service uh, coming up in a few weeks on August the 18th. A week before that, two weeks from now, on Sunday, August 11th, we're having a meeting for people, kind of just a launch team prep for people who'd like to be a part of that service. And when I say I'd like to be a part of that service, that service really has this opportunity not just to come and be a body in a chair, but really find a way to serve because it's just going to have some dynamics like a normal, one of these other morning services where we need people to help be involved as greeters and ushers, or help people with camera operators and things like that. So we'd love for you to get your kind of mind thinking about that and just see where the Lord's leading you. If you want to be a part, it's going to be a brand new thing. Trinity's never had an ongoing evening service, so we're excited about launching that. It's going to be that meeting again, August 11th. 5:30, right here in this building, and we'll give you some more details. But we're excited to get to launch that uh, together. Well, what we're going to do today, we're going to dive in and take a look at this parable and see what God has for us. This is a parable that many of you have read before. That you've kind of we've called the parable of the talents. And a couple things within that, the word talent uh, is a word we'll talk about in a second. It, it, it's often mis, misunderstood or confused with even the other English word for talent, that idea of like a gift, an ability that you put into motion. There's actually some overlay, and we'll see that today. But basically, it's, it's this parable of, of people who've been entrusted with things with the goal, the purpose of reinvesting them. And we'll kind of see how that bubbles to the top. The big idea that you want, I want you to see from the very beginning, though, and have this kind of on your radar as we dive in today is the incredible importance of not so much what you're gifted with, but what you do with what you're gifted with. That's going to be this big blinking red light, so I want you to anticipate that as we get a little closer. The other thing that's important about this parable is it's going to talk about our relationship to God in a way that we often don't look at. Like We love, we'll see that the Bible gives all these relational examples of what it means to be related to God. The great news is today, if church is new to you, or this idea of who God is is new to you, I want to tell you from the very beginning, God built you with the purpose of having a unique relationship with you. He's not far and away uninterested, uninvolved, but he's close, he's close as well. And he wants to know you, wants you to know him and be in a relationship much more. Trinity not a church that is about religion, We're very much what we understand being a follower of Jesus means being in a relationship. And so I want you to hear that from the very beginning today. Take a look at our Now What statement. We give one of these weekly to remind us that the Word of God is something that we're supposed to put into motion. Look how it reads invest what your Lord has given you with the desire of hearing Him say, Well done. That might be worded a little differently, your Lord, but that's actually very important in what we're looking at today. It'll make more sense when we dive in. Let's look at number one in your notes. Understand the nature of your relationship as your master's servant. Understand the nature of your relationship as your master's servant. That's that word picture, that illustration we're gonna look at today. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse, verse 14. It says, again, we'll get to that in a minute. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So we're going to unpack this today. This actually, this parable comes right after one of the first parables we looked at this summer. Hilke, on week two, talked about this parable of staying ready, and he began it Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. That parable was about 10 bridesmaids, five of which stayed ready, were prepared for the groom's arrival. The other five were not. He did a great job talking about what it means to be distracted and how easily confused we can become on what really matters and how to keep our gaze looking towards Jesus's return. Then this parable follows right after it. And maybe a way to understand this parable is if the parable before was the image and idea of staying ready, this parable talks about what does that actually mean? What does it look like to stay ready? What does it look like to be focused and be looking forward to Jesus's return? And that's what we're going to see as we unpack this. As we just read, the parable is easy enough to understand about a man who um, gives these assets, these resources to three people with the goal of them being reinvested, with the goal of them being used to demonstrate and develop more wealth. But the interesting thing I want you to hear from the beginning today is these weren't just three random people, meaning he didn't walk up to three people walking on the side of the road and said, hey, or come over here, let me give you some stuff, make good with it while I'm gone, and when I get back, I'll, I'll want to know how you did. It didn't go like that at all. It actually began with a master called his servants to him and he gave them these resources before he left. I'm going to say from the beginning today, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this than I was even planning on. But when I was processing it this week, I really realized that if you don't understand this parable, a parable that many of us have heard before, but if you don't understand it through the lens of master to servant, it doesn't make any sense. But once you understand that, then all the pieces that really kind of become, they make sense, they come clear, and we realize, what am I supposed to do with these words? let's talk about it this way. When we think about the way that God has made himself known to us and the way he wants to be in a relationship with us, he uses images or illustrations that we recognize kind of when you think of a parable, God using a a very common uh, idea or thing to help us realize there's a bigger truth behind that. That also would be true of the different relational examples he gives in scripture. So, for instance, one that is all over the Old and New Testament is that idea of, of God being a shepherd and us being His sheep. That's a beautiful image. It's very powerful. Or maybe it's the idea of, um, in the New Testament, it's really amplified of, of Jesus being the groom and he's, he's coming back for His bride, the church. And we see that illustration, especially through the epistles in the New Testament. Or maybe it's the idea, it's, it's actually throughout of all Scripture, but especially in the New Testament, of that of the idea of God being Father. And He calls us into His family. He adopts us into His family, calls us His sons and daughters. These are all very powerful images, and they're all in Scripture, and we should talk about them all the time. This is an interesting thing, though. This one we're going to talk about today is a, a relational image we don't often look at or think of, or maybe we've chosen not to. And it's that of master to servant. It's all throughout the Bible as well, just like these others. But it's been uh, simply neglected because we don't like to think that anyone, even God, has that kind of ownership or rightful authority in our lives. So this is one that we tend to think less about. But I want you to see today in Scripture, this is a powerful relational picture for us and one that we need to embrace and need to understand and need to really be able to go, God, that really is what it's like. Back to this man. He has servants who do a lot of things for him. Some do menial chores in the house. Others are working out in the field. These three that were introduced though today, this is their job. That's what we've called today, the faithful investors, at least two of the three. And that was their job was to invest their master's wealth. We looked at this idea of a talent. Now, I said it earlier, I really don't like the way the New Testament has, or the New Testament, the way the NIV translation has turned this talent into bags of gold. I think it's just a kind of a hokey term and yet within it, a talent was a real thing in the first century that was a measurement of, of weight. It was, it was the largest measurement. So here in our English system, we would have things like pounds and even a huge measurement of weight, like a ton, not just like a, a flippant word we use, oh, was a ton of fun, but like 2,000 pounds. I'm good with my math. 2,000 pounds, and that was a standard weight that people understood. A talent wasn't that great of an amount, but it was the highest common amount and value that they use in everyday currency. And this was a lot of of wealth. So for him to even give one amount of talent, one talent's worth of wealth to one of his servants was a great sum of money and one up to five and then two. So this is a great amount of wealth that he distributes among these three servants with the goal that they would do something with it that would be profitable. Let's unpack that relationship, though, that when that kind of maybe makes you bristle a little bit of, wait a second, so you're t- saying that, that God relates to me as a master does to a servant. Yes, that's what I'm saying, because that's simply what the Bible teaches. Let's look at what that is. In the Greek word you, you have on your notes, the, the Greek word that we see throughout the New Testament is often translated Lord or master in our Bibles, is the word Kyrios. And the word Kyrios is properly a person exercising, watch this, absolute ownership rights. A Lord, one who denotes an owner, a master, exercising full rights. So this is the word that we constantly see translated in the New Testament as Lord or master. And we've thought of that word sometimes kind of as a title, right? The Lord says this, but really it's actually a title in relationship to us, meaning someone is not just a Lord. Like maybe if you think of even like English history, Lords and nobles, that, this is actually very different. This is a, a, It always testifies to a relationship between that of one who is in charge and one who is not. So this word Lord, Kyrios, is all over the New Testament. The other word in your notes, the word found here for servant, is the Greek word doulos, which simply meant a servant or a slave. So that's what these three are referred to. They're not just three common guys off the street. These were his property. They were ones he had rightful authority and leadership over, and he entrusts to them some of his wealth before he goes on a journey. That's going to be huge today as we watch that unpack, because that all of a sudden makes the whole thing have a significance that rather than just three guys that randomly strolled into his room that day, these were people that he had direct leadership over. So this word due is all over the New Testament as well. Now, in the first century, when Jesus was saying these words, when it was being written, when it was being distributed, people did not under, misunderstand what the word servant or slave was, because we would understand that the third, one third of the population of the world was in a slave-like, servant-like relationship to a master. So it was readily understood. It wasn't like people had to try to translate, what does that relationship really mean? Like when Jesus is using words like kurios and doulos, they exactly know what he's talking about. It's a struggle for us Uh, in our own conception or in our own cultural to understand more of what that relationship is like. But this is a consistent word image. And I wanna show you that in the New Testament. Look how Jesus simply shared this basic relationship of what it's like for us related to his father. Luke chapter 17, verse seven. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant, when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because what he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Isn't it interesting? I'm going to say a lot of us today didn't even know that was in the Bible. Like, hmm. That's kind of like, really? That's what God says. Like, you should be grateful that you're a servant and you just do your job. Wow, that's an interesting take. Like, some of us are kind of like, huh, I really resonate with the sheep and shepherd thing. I really like the parent to child thing. But the servant and master thing is a little more challenging. And I want to say from the very beginning today, if this is new information to you, I'm happy to get to kind of share it with you and be able to explain. But I also want to say this. If you're resistant to it, I get that. I get that because we live in a culture where we like to think that we absolutely are in charge of our lives. And I want to show you today that absolutely you have nothing. It's not your life. It's not yours. It never was. That's the relationship. And if we would understand ourselves through a biblical lens, we are going to be so much better off in not only how we understand who we are, but how we live as a relation to that. And that's what I want you to see. So this passage from Luke 17 is one that doesn't often get a lot of press. It doesn't end up in your devotional time. It doesn't end up on, on posters, right? But this is the truth of the word of God. Look at how Paul says it, talking about his relationship to Jesus, to the Galatian church. Galatians 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a doulos, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here's what Paul is saying. I understand the relationship. And by the way, if you've heard that phrase before, that we're living for an audience of one, this is one of the biblical places that comes from. And the idea is simply this. Paul's saying, if I were trying to impress people, if I were trying to get them to like me and to somehow make myself look good to them, I would be on one path. But because I understand whose I am, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm on a different path, and my goal is not to impress them. My goal is to please him. That changes the whole dynamic, and that's what, that, what Paul clearly understood. Look how he says it this way. Paul's actually going to flip these terms where we usually think that salvation in Jesus is a freedom from, and it is. It's a freedom from sin. We also don't understand it's actually, though, a servitude towards righteousness, Paul writes it in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, watch, so now, instead of, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. He's not saying that the slavery concept in this case, in terms of who we're going to serve, who our master is going to be, is now a freedom from one and now a freedom to nothing. He's saying, no, it is a freedom from being under the rule of sin, but now it's a being under the leadership of a brand new type of master. His name is Jesus, and it's all about his righteousness. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And this is the verse you know. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to put it simply, the rightful relationship that God has over your life as his created being is that of master and servant. It's one that's to be obeyed, one that's to be embraced. And what we'll see today in this parable is if you choose to engage it, if you choose to accept it and say, yes, this is who I am as a created being under almighty God, If we will live out that design, the Bible says there is wild reward to wait. The interesting thing is true is just the opposite. If it's something that we would spurn and we'd want to throw off, the Bible says more than we can imagine, there's wild punishment to await. There's no middle neutral thing of you thinking you control you and your destiny. The Bible's pretty clear you don't. There's choices that we make, but God is the one who owns us. God is the one who's over us. And the simple question today is the choice is yours of how you're going to respond. The parable demonstrates that we receive from God what we're intended to invest, that we're called to be productive because we'll ultimately be evaluated. Understand the servants had no resources of their own that they were going to invest while the master was gone. It was all of his. They clearly understood that. They couldn't have missed it. Servants own nothing. All of this resource was from the master and it was to be used well. That's what the word stewardship means. Look in your notes. Stewardship means that God owns everything and we are simply managers or administrators acting on his behalf. This is a powerful idea. For some of us, this is relatively new thinking. What do you mean? I have a bank account. I have a title to a car. I am making a mortgage payment on a house. These are all things I, quote, own. This is different kind of thinking because the Bible says, no, you actually don't own squat. God owns it all. And the interesting thing is it's not just as though God owns your stuff that really isn't yours. He actually owns everything. That is by definition what it means to be creator and sustainer of all that is. So the simple question is, there's a lot of people borrowing, using, managing, stewarding his stuff, some well and some very poorly. But it's all an issue of stewardship. That's at the end of the day. Let me give you an example. Take a look at this incredible piece of automotive machinery. This is the Toyota Corolla that sits out in front of uh, my house. And the interesting thing is this is a car that three of my children have driven. We got it when Jackson was a senior in high school, actually living in the high desert. We came to Redlands to buy it and it's been a great car. Jackson drove it till he went away to college. Then my daughter, Aaliyah, started driving it and now Kendi is driving it. I'm pretty confident it's not gonna make it to our fourth child because of the the age gap. It's a great vehicle, we love it, but I just don't know if it's got five more years uh, and I don't know how Ellie's gonna be as a driver, so a lot of questions. But the reality is this. Here's the interesting thing. Every time that one of our kids, has it's, it's been their car to use, they've said things like this, my car. And isn't it interesting? Their name is nowhere on the title. It says Todd and Joanna, but yet Jackson, Aaliyah, and Kendi have all thought of it as my car. And they'll say things like that all the time. And the interesting thing is then I say to things like that, well, isn't it interesting how dirty your car is? <clears throat> To which I remind them that if it was your car, you could keep it as dirty as you want, but it's mine. And because you're using it, you need to take good care of it, so therefore it needs to get a wash. Or when there's stuff on the floor and inside it needs to be vacuumed, I don't make the observation that your floors are dirty in the car you're driving. I actually give them a directive. You need to vacuum out the floor. That's what happens when you steward something versus when you own it. So the reality, that's the picture in our minds. We are simply stewards, managers of everything that we think is ours. Look at this great quote. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already not a great? That's just totally true. God is the master. We are his servants built with that purpose and in that relationship. Now, I don't want you to walk away today thinking that's the only relationship we have with God because it's not. All the other ones I mentioned before are also true. But can you remember something? As much as you like to get the conjure in your idea of a shepherd with his sheep and that cute little lamb, do you know that shepherds have a staff It's a big wooden pole, and it keeps sheep from doing what they ought not do. That picture, if if we get a real-life shepherd up here today, he's not going to talk about how that relationship is just roses. Sheep can be ornery and stubborn, and he brings correction. Can we talk about the parent relationship for just a second? As awesome as it is to be a son or a daughter of God, it's also true who brings a lot of correction into our lives because we often go our own way. None of these illustrations are without a sense of authority and leadership. They all have it. This one just speaks to that even more more significantly than the others. The other thing I want you to see today, look in your notes, this parable also demonstrates that the master understood the wattage. That's my word, I'll explain it in a minute. The wattage of each of his servants and gave them resources accordingly. Note in the parable that to one he gives five measures of wealth, to another two, and to another one. He did not give them all the same. That's really an important point throughout the time today. He gave them different measured amounts. And it makes me think of, I use the word wattage. I remember going to a conference and they talked about the kind of wattage related to people's giftedness. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting term. Well, I thought of it this way. This is a light. This is a a CFL, uh, kind of a bulb. So this kind of compact uh, fluorescent tube. This goes in front of my house Uh, out on the the porch there by the garage door and just kind of bring some uh, light in the evening time. That's all that is. Um, And this has, it's got a a different wattage maybe, but it only uses 23 watts. That's what powers it. On the other hand, this is a heat lamp that has 250 watts. And and the interesting thing is, they they obviously couldn't go in the same type of socket. They have different um, ways that they engage. But the interesting thing is, this is really, really good for what I want it to do, for its purpose that it meets out in the front of my house. And what people, what I would hear about, if I had some sort of crazy loud, when I say loud, meaning really bright, and even hot light in that same socket, my neighbors would be the first to come over and say, we can't even see at night. You're blinding us through our shades with your crazy, you know, floodlight that you have in your front yard. So I obviously, though it has a higher wattage, it doesn't serve the right purpose that this does. And similarly, if I'm getting out of my shower in a cold morning and I want to stand under a heat lamp and I've got this little guy up there providing just a scant amount of light in the first place, no heat at all, that's not doing the job. So the interesting thing is, is rather than think one lamp is better than the other, we think we should ought not think that way. We should think each has its own purpose, and therefore, it has an appropriate wattage to accomplish that purpose, okay? The interesting thing is, when we think about this idea of wattage, this master understood well how gifted, how the degrees of wattage that each of these servants had, and then gave them resources accordingly, He knew them well. We're going to see that play out really well as we listen to the rest of the parable. But the reality is is that we could take that illustration as well and consider that in our own lives. God has given us also an appropriate amount of wattage. So watch this. Every time that we're envious of, of what we see our neighbors driving or what house they live in, Every time that we're envious of what we see presented in marketing that we think it's unfair that we can't afford, every time we're envious of what we see others enjoying on social media, we demonstrate that we believe God has misappropriated his gifts. God, were you taking a nap? How did that person get those things, get those resources, and I didn't? Because of course, that's what I'd want to do is use them for your kingdom, Why are they in my pocket? Yeah, you know, probably not. I probably wouldn't. And that's also a beautiful thing about God's understanding of who we are by what he does a lot to us. I've been in ministry for 26 years. I've worked with a lot of people and I've even seen things in my own life to the same way. God endows us, God grants us, God gives us to manage his stuff appropriate with what we can handle. And by the way, that doesn't just relate to finances and wealth, it relates to gifts. This is an interesting thing. As much as we might be envious of what other people have, material, possession-wise, we actually can also be envious for what types of things they have, maybe with their health, maybe with their relationships, maybe with their privileges, maybe with even their spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church struggled with that. They thought a certain types of gifts were more enviable than others, and they were frustrated, but we do the same thing. We do it in all kinds of ways. For me, I'll be candid today, I struggle sometimes when I see the wattage of other people who do things similar to I, that what I do. I see their gifts of leadership, I see their gifts of teaching, and I go, man, I'm envious to be able to communicate like that or be able to lead like they do, because I'm just blown away with how gifted they are. And it's one thing to appreciate it, but can we all be honest? That appreciation fades really quickly. Why don't I have that gift? And we have gift envy all the time. Can I say, this is interesting, by the way, the gifts that we envy are rarely, man, that guy serves when no one's looking like so amazingly. I wish I had that gift. That's really rare we think that way. She, she has this amazing gift of hospitality. I really wish I could serve people like that. No, our gift envy is usually for gifts that are under the lights. The gifts that get noticed and recognized. Those are the things we wish we had more of. And what I want to give you some great news today as we look at this, I want you to not only be aware of the way that God has gifted us with his great intent, his incredible sovereign understanding of not only who we are, but what our purpose on this planet is, but I want to show you in just a moment that at the end of the day, it really isn't about how gifted you are, how much wealth you've received. It's all about what you're doing with what you've got. Last comment. We'll move on to point number two. I want to make mention we also read about one servant who received one measure of wealth. And I want you to see that as we now unpack the rest of this parable, when you understand who he is, he's a servant in relationship to a master. And when you understand that this was his job, Okay, we said there were servants who were cleaning the house. There were other servants who are working in the fields. His one job was to take this talent and reinvest it. And what did he do? Dug a hole in the ground, stuck it there. And what was he doing while the other two servants were working hard, multiplying? Sitting back in the lazy boy. If you don't understand this relationship, you miss the whole point of the parable. That he had one design as his master's servant, and he totally, when the master's gonna call him wicked and lazy, I want you to see those words are rightly deserved. Point number two in your notes today, reward will be based on what you did with what you were given. Reward will be based on what you did with what you were given. This should be incredibly liberating and incredibly powerful to all of us today, no matter, quote, what our wattage, because it's not about how much, it's a matter of what you do with what you have. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrust me with two bags of gold, so you have gained two more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. All right, so let's see what this is. So the master comes back, and there is an expectation of a reckoning. An expectation of of an evaluation of what they have done while he's been gone. Remember it says after a long time. He's been gone for a long time. They've been able to put these things into motion. They've both been diligent. And I really want you to see, again, I think it's so important, back to the nature of the relationship. When you see the way he responds to them, it blew their minds. Everyone who was listening as Jesus was saying this illustration, this parable, this is where their minds were blown. We miss it I want to help us see it today. First off, when these uh, two that were faithful, they, we rightly today titled today's message The Faithful Investors. That's what they did. Most likely, they took this wealth, they went to the marketplace, and they engaged it in trading to be able to see that continue to grow and multiply. I want you to see how active it was. I want you to see it was a job, and they understood as such, and they worked hard to to demonstrate good faithfulness, good reliability. It wasn't they just sat back, played the stock market, clicked a few clicks here and there. This was a challenging role, and they took it on. That's how that happened. That's how that money grew. When the master hears of their diligence, I want you to see today, he does more than give them a pat on the head which actually to a servant would have been great because really as a servant, back again to that relationship, at best he would have expected that his master simply acknowledged he did what he was told to do. But I want you to see today how much more the master does than that. This part of the parable is the part that you know so well. Listen to these words again. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness. Look briefly at what's happening in this exchange. See that not only did they do what they were supposed to do, but the master affirms their character. He calls them good. He calls them faithful. This is much more than you simply did a job and we check a box. You, you as a person did something that was good, something that you were faithful with. He goes on to affirm the fact that because they were faithful, trustworthy, reliable with a few things, which by the way, we realize, man, that's a lot of wealth. That's not, doesn't seem like a few to us. Now they were going to be asked to manage now as a result of their faithfulness, actually given roles of standing, given the job of being in charge of governing. This is the part that in the first century, we read right over the top of it, but the first century, Jesus' audience wouldn't have missed this. No doulos gets to be in charge of anything. No servant gets to be a governor of anything. That's where everything changed. Their roles and relationship to the master changed at this point of evaluation. Look in your notes. The master is appointing them to not just manage what he's given them, but to actually give them leadership, to give them some of his authority over something, though they be slaves. And that's the reward I want you to see today. They never saw coming. That's where Jesus' audience jaws would have dropped and said, wait a second, no doulos gets treated like that. These did. They were faithful, and he rewards them beyond what they would have, would have guessed. And I love how it says he invites them to share with him, to enjoy the rewards of their efforts with him because he's benevolent. He does love them and wants them to be a part as faithful investors. Now, one of the biggest themes that I really want you to see today, we can also read right over the top. Is What this parable really demonstrates, it was in the heading of this second point, is that the reward is not based on the ultimate mass, it's based on the actual effectiveness with what they had. Because you could read that and go, wait a second, I read that and what the master said to the one who earned two heard the exact same words as the one who earned five. Does the master have bad math? Like you should get ecstatic maybe if a guy, you know, doubles that return now five. Five is much more than two. How does the master not know this? Here's why. Because the master wasn't gauging, wasn't evaluating on pure mass. He was gauging on what'd you do with what I gave you? What'd you do with what I gave you? I'm not worried about how much you were given initially. I'm concerned about what you did with whatever the sum was. I absolutely believe Those of you who know the parable know the outcome of the one who was given one. I absolutely believe if he would have put that one to use, he would have heard the exact same thing. The master demonstrates this evaluation was not about sheer amount of giftedness. It was based on simply, what did you do with what you had? This is incredibly great news for all of us twos in the room. Thank you, God. You are not gonna evaluate me based on something I didn't have. But it's also a great word of accountability. But for everything that you have given me, you will evaluate me. There will be a day of reckoning as well. And that's really powerful on both sides of it. This is indeed great news. Look how the Apostle Paul said it to the Corinthian church regarding their giving. giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 12. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. He was saying this through a lens of their giving back to God. And what he wanted them to know is no one's evaluating you based on what you don't have. It's all based on what have you been gifted with. That is the measure. That's the way that we evaluate. That's the way, more importantly, God evaluates. You see, for a God who owns it all, it's never a matter of giving him something he doesn't already have. He lays claim to it all. It's simply how is it being apportioned? How is it being managed? Look in your notes. It's simply a matter of being faithful with however much or however little has been entrusted to you. That's what this evaluation in Matthew 25, that's the evaluation of the parable of the talents, the parable of these faithful investors is all based on what did you do with what you'd received. And here's the interesting thing is that's really true on all fronts. That's true on all fronts. No matter how you've been entrusted financially, recognize that God owns it and manage his finances well. No matter how you've been entrusted with things in terms of your giftedness, recognize that God owns it and manage his gifts his way. No matter how much you've been entrusted with relationally, the idea of how much that God has given you influence in people's lives, understand that that's his and manage your relationships his way. Finally, today, number three, punishment awaits untrustworthy servants. Punishment awaits untrustworthy servants. Matthew 25, verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you would not sown, and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put the money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance." Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. This, this parable ends in what seems like a very harsh way. And I will say it is harsh, not unfair, but harsh. Harsh in the reality of what awaits. This is the interesting thing about this parable. This parable has nothing to do with, with people who just in the subset are followers of Jesus and how they respond. This is all of humanity. That's why I want you to see today that God doesn't just own our lives as those who put our faith in Jesus. He owns everything because that's what it means to be creator and sustainer. What this parable is speaking to is, will those who understand their right relationship under the authority of God respond in ways like a faithful servant would? Or would those who say, I don't know, listen to even the way that the man talked about the master. You're a harsh man. You're hard. You try to reap where you haven't sown. Can I show you this even in the parable? That's not true. It'd be one thing if he said to his servant, here's zero resources. Now go do something. Even to that one, he gave him an incredibly large measure of resource and said, with this, use this. And see, it multiply." Isn't it interesting that those of us today who feel like we are under-resourced actually feel sometimes like we have nothing? That's not true. You might have less than the person sitting across the way, but it's not true that you have nothing that you can use to invest for God's kingdom. That's what this parable bubbles to the top. And that's why I want you to see this over and again. The reason why the master would call him wicked and lazy, watch this, is because he was. He had one job while the master was gone. And instead of taking that to the marketplace to invest, he sat on his hammock. And he just enjoyed the day going by. Even think of it last week. If you were here last week, we talked about the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. That's what this is. This guy goes to a field, digs a hole, throws an amount of wealth inside, covers it back up, and just hopes to find it later. Can you even imagine, based on our parable last week, someone goes hopping and skipping through the field, sees this amount of treasure inside, and goes and buys the field, and now what even that guy buried isn't there could have easily happened. That's why nothing about what this guy did made sense or was ever sure. Everything about it was totally ill thought and totally in a lazy uh, lack of fulfilling his role. He demonstrated that he exactly was who the master called him out to be. What this servant didn't want to submit to is inescapable. It's our relationship of what it means to be under the creator of the universe. Look in your notes. We are God's servants who are called to him with the purpose of using what is his. And that includes all of us and what we think are our resources in order to accomplish his purposes. It's when you would pull back and realize today what I think is mine, including my even very soul, is not. And in right relationship to a master, I'm here to realize I'm here for his purposes. I'm here to engage in his ways. Some of us today, as we listen to this, it just reinforces what you knew. And my hope is that it would be a source of encouragement to go, you know what? I had laid down my life a long time ago. I resonate with those words of Paul. I could not be a people pleaser. That's one path. And be one who was a loss and try to please my master. Those two things don't make any sense. They don't go together. They contradict. And as you hear this today, it just reinforces, God, more than anything else, I want to hear you say, well done. For others of us, we bristle against this, and it's a real challenge You're thinking that nobody, including God, has any right to lay claim to your life. And if so, if that's where you're at today, I just want to, number one, I want to say I'm glad you're here, but I also want to encourage you to, to heed the warning that is in this parable today, and it goes back to our now what statement. I want to encourage you to invest what your Lord has given you with the desire of hearing him one day say, well done. Let's pray. So Father, today we look at a, a passage from your word that is very much meant to be there. Its theme is replete all throughout the Bible that we indeed should understand ourselves as being under our kurios, as being under our Lord, our master. And God, would you, thank you because of the master that you are. You're not harsh. You're not unfair. You're not one who just rules with this iron scepter. You are one. God, who calls us into a right relationship and you give us everything we need to invest lives that would ultimately bring you glory, lives that demonstrate your value and your worth, lives that fit according to the kingdom. So God, we thank you for this passage today. It's eye-opening, it alerts us, it makes us aware of who we are in relationship to you and we are grateful for that. If you're here today and you've actually never responded to the invitation doesn't make a difference in what we've seen today. You're God's servant one way or the other. The reality is, like we sang in our first song today, have you bent the knee? The great news is that you can, even here, even now, to bend your knee to a master who is not just this strong overlord, domineering, but he as the creator of the universe, he's built you with purpose, built you with design, and wants to see your life be something useful for the kingdom for eternity. You can, A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. You can, B, believe that Jesus is the only Savior available. This one who spoke these words, he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. This is what Jesus did for you, how he lived. And as a result, was this atoning sacrifice. He made it right. So, would you see, would you choose? Choose to put your confidence, choose to put your your trust into what he has accomplished for you. And arms wide open, say, God, I recognize your leadership over my life. I am your servant. I wanna live according to your design. You can respond to this invitation today even before you leave, and I pray that you would. Father, we love you. Thank you for giving us the truth Help, helping us understand this relationship between us and you, just at least one more piece of it and help us this week to live in light of it. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.